Prayer formation is often uneventful. Nothing's happening. And I think that is the stumbling block of it. And at the same time, that's the secret sauce of it, is that nothing is happening in the moment. Uh, or it seems what Thomas Merton would say is, you know, something's actually subterranean happening on a, on a level that we can't even, with our sensory perception, we, we cannot touch it, smell it, taste it, see it, but something subterranean is happening. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season two, prayer. Hey everyone, Tyler Staten here, and welcome back to episode four of the Rule of Life podcast, season two, which is all about prayer. We're sitting here for one last time in the studio of the Bible Project, who again was so kind to allow us to occupy their space. Thank you so much, friends. Here are the stages that we're working through when it comes to types of prayer. We've talked about talking to God, talking with God listening to God, and now we will land with being with God. And it should be clarified that, of course, we're not talking about stages of development into a life of prayer. We view this more as a tightening spiral where we always are interacting with all of these ways of prayer as we go on a journey of maturity in our conversation and life with God that is summed up in this word, prayer. So first, I want to say hello to our guests who are with us. They should be familiar to you by now. Reward Sabanda from Mm. Upper Room in Dallas. Yeah. Gemma Ryan, who is uh, from Oaks Church, Brooklyn, and also uh, serves as a spiritual director and increasingly is outing herself as the wisest voice on the podcast. Heck yes. <laughs> Best Amen accent. I don't know. It's, it's a toss-up on accent, but... Oh, she takes it. Oh. And of course, John Mark, it's great to be with you, my friend. Hey, everybody. So in the last episode, John Mark, you opened with a famous moment when Mother Teresa was on 60 Minutes and uh, she was asked about her prayer life and uh, she was asked, what do you say to God? And she said, I don't say anything. I listen. But then you stopped before the next mm-hmm. question. I did which, not finish it. it was, was it Dan Rather? Yes. Yeah. Where Dan Rather said, well, what does God say to you? Because he's really thrown off. He's like, wait, what? Right. He's like, there's an awkward moment on camera. Yeah, and he's trying to keep up with her train of thought. What does God say to you? And she says, he doesn't say anything. He listens. (laughs) Which is either utterly beautiful as a picture of prayer, or you're thinking, what? (laughs) What on earth does that mean? (laughs) And that will be people's response to this final session of being with God. It's either the most beautiful picture of prayer you can imagine, or you're going, what does that even mean?
So, John, Mark, why don't you get us started by summing up the teaching of session four? Yeah, I open with the second half of that Mother Teresa story, and then just note that the farther we progress in prayer, just, uh, and again, meaning our life with God, just like in our relationships with people, the more we grow and we love Him and desire to talk with Him and speak to Him, but also to listen to Him and even more to just be with Him. You know, all human—at this point, everybody, if you read the contemplative tradition, they all start to reach for metaphors, you know, and metaphors all fall short of the beauty of life with God. And human analogies all fall short here, but marriage is, you know, the most common. There is a level of intimacy that is literally the intermingling of persons at the deepest level that is wordless yet deeply loving— that the mystics have long said is ultimately a picture of union with God. When applied to prayer, this type of wordless prayer of just kind of being with the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and participating in their love, this kind of prayer or type of prayer or dimension of prayer has come to be called contemplation. Now that word means different things to different people at different times in church history, Um, we use it in just the kind of broad and most basic kind of level of that word, not a technical use of it. And there are kind of three dimensions to contemplative prayer, looking, yielding, and resting. So looking, kind of the most basic meaning of contemplative prayer is looking at God. So the label comes from the New Testament itself, from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, We all who with unveiled faces, and this is a bride on her wedding day kind of imagery where we are the bride and Christ is the bridegroom, that moment, again, Eastern culture where uh, at this point in that kind of history of the world and that part of the world, a bride would unveil to her husband on the wedding night, not in the wedding. With unveiled faces, this picture of relational intimacy, we contemplate the Lord's glory, uh, a word meaning his beauty and his goodness, and are being transformed into his image of glory with ever-increasing glory. And the word that's translated contemplate there is katotrizo in Greek, and it literally means to gaze at or to direct your inner gaze at. Now, this is a bit weird since we can't see God. Uh, Bonaventure, who was a medieval kind of intellectual and Christian monk, said that we have three eyes. This is an interesting paradigm. Uh, Again, you can take it or leave it. He said we have the eye of the body by which we see kind of the natural world around us and creation. We have the eye of the mind by which we see truth. Think of, you know, concepts and ideas and paradigms. And then we have what he called the eye of the heart by which we see God and arguably see other people at the deepest level. There's an Eastern saint, Theophan the Solitary, who has this famous line, to pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seeing within you. And by the heart there, he doesn't mean it like how we use it a lot, just your emotions. He means like this kind of deeper eye of your soul, this Mm -hmm. deeper part of you by which we look at God, the beauty of God. Again, it's at, at this level, when we're talking about this kind of prayer, it's hard to talk about it because it's hard to put it into language because it's wordless. Mm. So you're trying to use language to describe something that is not, that is not a thought-based or a language-based experience. The second dimension is yielding. 
So, um, you know, there's a type of prayer that we covered already, a petition, intercession, where you are you're working with God to change what is. And that's good, and that's necessary in the right time, in the right place. But in contemplative prayer, in this aspect of prayer, you're not so much trying to change what is, you're trying to work with God to accept what is, to make peace with it. Think of Jesus at the end of the Gethsemane prayer, not my will, but yours be done. You're just kind of yielding your will and the circumstances and the reality of your life over to God. And then the last aspect is kind of resting. You know, again, petition and intercession feel more akin to work. Like in Orthodox Judaism, you know, all intercessory prayer is forbidden on the Sabbath because they view it as a version of work. And, and, and work is a good thing. And they would say, we should do it six days a week. But on the Sabbath, we don't do that because we're trying to come to rest in God, to delight in God, to delight in what is. So contemplative prayer feels less like working with God and more like resting in God, more like a portable Sabbath. In classical spirituality, where contemplative is a bit more of a technical term, they would say it's a work of grace, meaning that you don't practice contemplative prayer like by ancient Christian standards. It's a gift that you receive. You just present yourself before God year after year after year after year, and you hope that at some point God does this work in your soul where he brings you into this new dimension of kind of wordless prayer and experience of, of dwelling with the Trinity who's dwelling within you. So then I go through some of the various challenges that we face and, uh, you know, distraction, hurry, all of that stuff, and end by doing some work on, you know, the ancient kind of daily prayer rhythm or the daily office or fixed hour prayer. It's just a way of trying to pause throughout our day with the end goal of, and we've been talking about this the last few episodes, of trying to live every waking moment, as much of life as possible, in communion with God. That's session four. The Prayer Practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community that combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the Prayer Practice, you will not just learn about prayer, you will learn how to pray. The end goal is to integrate prayer more richly into your rule of life so that you can arrange your life around God. The Prayer Practice is completely free thanks to the generosity of our friends in the circle, a group of people from all over the world who give monthly to Practicing the Way. Available now at practicingtheway.org. You know, as you're referring to looking, a couple of key places in Scripture jump to my mind. One is that the the famous, you know, the wrap-up of the incredible Hall of Fame that is Hebrews 11. Yeah. And it talks about, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes, eyes. on Jesus, mm-hmm. fixing our gaze on Him. And this is how Hebrews sums up our response to this lineage of faith that we're to follow in. And then... Revelation 22, the close of the scripture, uh, says, And they shall live with his face in view, and that they belong to him will show on their faces. Their faces, wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a picture of gazing, gazing at God. And another way, you know, you could agree or disagree with this, but another way you could frame it is that we're all contemplatives. The question is, what are we contemplating? <laughs> Our mind all yeah, day right. long is looking at something. Is mm-hmm. it the New York Times? Is it Instagram? Is it Twitter? And we're becoming like whatever we look at. You know, I quote mm-hmm. that Singaporean writer, Hui Hui Tan, 
who writes, you know, you are what you contemplate. Mm -hmm. You are what you give your mind to over a long period of time. So we're all contemplatives. The question is, who or what are we contemplating? You know, what are we contemplating? What are we looking at, gazing at? It makes me think of where Scripture says that Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. This sense of like contemplation being a pondering of God. Yeah, it's such a beautiful and really great point, John Mark, but it's also dangerous because it gives me the opportunity to go right to the heart of the controversy with you right away, (laughs) (laughs) which is, so all that sounds great, man, but how is this different than mindfulness? Like, how is what you're describing something different than just slapping a Jesus bumper sticker on <laughs> yeah. the, the phenomenon of mindfulness that is sweeping the Literally, Western my, secular my world My kids right were now. taught in kindergarten at their public school. Yeah. Well, okay, there are different answers to that. One is that in some layers of it, it's not that different. It's a lot of similarities. In other areas, it's chasmic in its difference, you know, so both different and similar. Mm-hmm. And I think we want to speak to this because mindfulness in uh, certain aspects of our culture right now is all the rage, and it's very much become woven into the fabric of particular my kids' generation. The common story on mindfulness is that it started with Buddhist meditation, and then it was kind of co-opted and secularized by Western psychologists who brought it into mainstream culture a few decades ago to help kind of Originally, it was people who were, um, you know, kind of traumatized and dealing with trauma, and then just kind of ordinary people cope with the stress and neurosis of modern life. But you can make a counter-argument, and this is not me, this is like people much smarter than me, that it's actually more Christian than Buddhist, but because we live in a post-Christian culture, if you're a, you know, psychological intellectual, it's in vogue to quote a Buddhist, an anathema for a secular elite to quote Jesus of Nazareth mm-hmm. or... Julian of Norwich or Evagrius Ponticus or pick your contemplative from the Christian tradition of choice. But argue, I mean, we have to remember for those who who are, some people are really drawn to the Eastern tradition or from the Eastern tradition, others are really leery of it. We have to forget that Jesus was Eastern, not Western. The Jesus movement started in the East, not in the West. The oldest form of the Christian faith is called Eastern Orthodoxy, capital O. And the Eastern stream of the church in particular has a two millennia old tradition of contemplative prayer going all the way back to the Desert Fathers and Mothers in North Africa, my brother, mm-hmm. where there is you know, this very ancient practice of kind of quiet, wordless prayer that is focused on the breath, that is focused on a prayer word or what you know, we'd be more familiar with the idea of a mantra. Mm-hmm. Evagrius in the third century in his beautiful writing, you can get this on the internet, it's called On Prayer. It is a beautiful, short read, beautiful. He has this line, prayer is the laying aside of thoughts. And this is, I mean, this is as Christian as it comes, but this is a different dimension of prayer than petition, intercession, lament, gratitude, the laying aside of thoughts, a, a type of prayer that, that goes beyond the thoughts. So there are similarities between contemplative prayer and mindfulness. In particular, it's emphasis on noticing your thoughts, on not clinging to your thoughts, on non-judgmental awareness, on letting your thoughts come and go and coming back to your breath. You can find all of this in Evagrius, all of this in like texts by desert fathers and mothers that are, you know, third century. But there are also major differences. And, you know, there are a few, let's talk about them. But one of the primary ones is that you're not, in contemplative prayer, unlike mindfulness, you're not surrendering to just to what is, as in Buddhism, like where you detach from emotional 
you know, clinging to the circumstances of your life, but you are surrendering to who is, you know, to God himself. So in Buddhism, God is not a personal being at all. If that word is used, it doesn't mean anything remotely akin to how it's used by Jesus. But in Jesus' teaching, God is a trinitary community of agape love. And so in contemplative prayer, yes, there's a sense of surrender, of yielding, but it's to a person, it's Mm -hmm. to God. Yeah, and I think one distinction that I would want to name is that we are not emptying our minds, but we are filling our minds. We're filling our minds with thoughts of God, with his beauty. We are meditating on the glory of God, much like that pondering that that I just mentioned that Mary was doing when she pondered all those things in her heart. When you say that, like not just filling our mind with information about Mm -hmm. God, which is beautiful to fill your mind with theology and doctrine and biblical insight, but you mean, right, like filling your mind with a vision of God, of who he is, of again, looking at God, looking at you in love. But, you know, there is a danger in there, in particular for millennials or those in social contexts like Portland, where we're at right now, where there is an affinity in culture for mindfulness and for Buddhism, there is a danger that we depersonalize prayer. And uh, I sat down with Strawn uh, recently. He's a good friend of mine from New Zealand and just has a rich life of prayer. And I asked him about this, and he did agree and bring up some of the dangers of what happens if and when we depersonalize God through contemplative prayer. I've been thinking a lot recently about... um you know, the kind of seeker-friendly church model that was really big when I was sort of coming up in my church growing up and the idea being, you know, essentially to make the church environment welcoming to people who aren't ready for church yet, which I think is has got amazing strengths and amazing challenges, you know, as I think we discovered over the time. <clears throat> and I do think that there is sort of like a seeker-friendly contemplativeness or a seeker-friendly quote-unquote mysticism, which really almost depersonalizes God and makes it so similar to mindfulness and meditation that you have this kind of force or essence or being that you're trying to engage with that isn't really the dynamic and interpersonal and exciting God that we discover in Christ and in in the scriptures. And I think there's a real danger that in the contemplative tradition that we do just make God some kind of energy or some kind of feeling or some kind of possessiveness and I think what I love about my charismaticness, if I can, if that's a word, is the way it personalizes God. And I think that in prayer, true prayer comes from personalizing God as much as we can in the human sense of dialoguing with him about emotions and feelings and his emotions and feelings. And so I I found for me at least, you know, spent these years, four or so years in these intense intercessory groups. Now I still intercede and pray and I, and I kind of, my background is more in those prophetic communities and I still long for those, that, for God to speak. I think it's just the way that I expect him to, to arrive in those moments or the expansion of what it means for him to arise in those moments that's changed. So it's more like, yeah, God might speak very quietly in the stillness of my heart or he might still come to me in a dream or a vision. Or it actually may be a meditation upon something in nature that reveals something of his character that then becomes something to be shared. And so I think it's more expanding what we mean when we say something like God speaks or the spirit arrived or God manifested that I think tradition offers us than it is removing that manifest presence. And the thing is, we all have a danger, don't we, in every season to err towards one or the other. Um, 
I can be more charismatic sometimes and contemplative and I feel that tension of like, well, I've just got to recede or man, I've got to pull myself out. Um, we run into danger when we make God a program or a system or an ism or an ology or a personality preference and then we say, oh, I've got it now. I'm a dot, dot, dot contemplative or Pentecostal or charismatic. Um, and I think the second we do that, I understand why we do but really, it's a system of control, and what it does is we get trapped in that ism or that ology, and then God loses his personhood, and then prayer becomes less dynamic, and I want to always push back against that. So there is a danger, I think is what he's saying, but it's worth it. You know, that doesn't mean, so therefore, don't go down that path. It means stay on the right path, because on the other side is a rich life of intimacy with God. Yeah, something that a lot of people tend to ask when they first begin practicing contemplative prayer, because we're talking, to be very clear, about sitting in silence before God, mm -hmm. not filling that silence with your words, but just fixing your eyes on God and allowing Him to behold you, beholding Him, beholding you. And so a, a, a question that would make a lot of sense that a lot of people ask is, well, how do I know if it's working then? I know. <laughs> like, how do I know if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm praying or if I'm just sitting quietly? And, <laughs> and, and what is the We're difference? so utilitarian, too. We're so about production. Like, mm -hmm. is, is, it, is it doing the thing? You yeah, know? absolutely. And one of the great classics uh, of modern history on prayer is uh, Andy Murray's book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And he has a chapter on Jesus' famous ask, seek, knock invitation. Ask, it will be given to you, seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And he points out, as, as many biblical scholars have, that a more accurate translation of the ancient Greek tense is keep on asking, and you will receive. Keep yes. on seeking, and you will find. Keep, keep on, on knocking, knocking, and the door will be opened. And particularly that last invitation to keep on knocking, he pairs with Revelation 3, where the picture is juxtaposed. Oh, interesting. Where, and the door will be opened. Right, where Jesus himself is knocking at the door, and we open the door to him, and it says that he comes in and eats with us. Wow, I've never put that together. Yeah, and so there's this, there's this juxtaposition at the end of the scripture, and the picture that we have at the end is of sitting down at a table to eat with the Trinitarian God, wow. Father, Son, and Spirit. And ultimately, this is a picture of the invitation of contemplative prayer. It is to find yourself seated in the company of the Father, Son, and Spirit, feasting on the bread of life. Which takes me back to another brilliant insight that was offered us in your conversation with Strawn, John Mark. For me, it's about sitting down, slowing my body down, and just directing my heart. You know, St. Theophan the Recluse, this kind of Russian starrets or hermit, uses this language of bringing the mind down into the heart. Um, and this sort of mystery of allowing your thoughts to come down into your body and sitting before God and saying, I'm here for you and expecting and trusting and believing that you're not receiving judgment or criticism and God doesn't have a magnifying glass. His, his, not, his priority is not, I want to see all your sin and talk about it, but sitting and saying, 
God is a compassionate, empathetic, loving kindness. And that is pouring out toward me. And I'm going to sit and in my body, let my body see and experience and lean into that reality. And I don't know if on the other side of that, you get to see something visually, but I think the seeing is the body accepting and recognizing the reality that God is astounding other love. And um, so for me, beholding is this practice of, okay, how do I not just look for God, but I look for this kind, loving, compassionate, empathetic God in the space of my body, in my mind, and in my life. I think that one of the most common misconceptions about what the experience of contemplative prayer is meant to be is that when I am sitting quietly before the Lord, I'm awaiting revelation. And that means that if I don't walk away with some deep insight about my inner world or uh, a word that is going to redefine my destiny or something, then it hasn't worked. I I haven't heard God or God hasn't spoken or something like that. And that comes from a, a view of contemplative prayer of being with God as utilitarian, as we were noting before. Mm-hmm. I think uh, an image that I want to replace that with is instead for the motive behind being with God to be consent. Because what we know is that God, by his Holy Spirit, is transforming each and every one of us who calls Jesus Lord from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we gain language for that transformation. And you know, reward, you could say to me, hey, Tyler, what's God doing in your life lately? And I could have words to describe his inside-out transformation that's going on within me. But other times there is a deeper-than-language, maybe even deeper-than-my-consciousness way that I am being redeemed from the inside-out. And to me, to sit before the Lord with my feet planted and my hands open and my eyes closed and simply fix my eyes on Jesus, is my way of saying, God, you have the first word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everything Mm -hmm. that I do, everything I gain language for in my own redemption story, uh, it's all in response to what you are already doing within me. My entire life with Mm -hmm. you is nothing more than a response. So I'm simply consenting and saying, yes, remake me from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Yes, continue your work within me. And revelation comes sometimes when I get language for that. (laughs) But what's always happening is transformation is working itself out as I'm participating with God by consent. But it's fine. I mean, if St. John was right and God's primary language is silence, then it's also fine if God doesn't want to speak to you, if he just wants to be there with you Mm -hmm. and present to you and doing things that our conscious mind has no clue of. Yeah, and in fact, as someone that leans more toward performance and is more extroverted, I often think that one of the ways God loves me most is when he doesn't say anything to me because he is choosing to not tap into a good way that he's made me, but that which I tend to make an ultimate way that he's made me. You know, and St. John, and that's St. John of the Cross, not St. John of the New Testament, He's the one that gave us the most in-depth writing on this concept of the dark night of the soul and seasons when God feels more like absence than presence, which you really feel in contemplative prayer. Like it just, it really brings up your felt experience or felt non-experience of God in those moments, you know? It's like you're really raw before God and your state is really clear. 
But, you know, what people don't realize, if you go back and read his work or read somebody, a scholar like Gerald May's kind of work on his work, you realize that one of the main things he was saying is that uh, for St. John, the Dark Knight wasn't necessarily depressive. Like, he's, he wrote in Spanish, and it was uh, it was Noche Obscura, or like the Obscure Night. What he was saying was that there are seasons when God is working in our heart and soul and formation that are obscure to us, just meaning we can't see it. Mm-hmm. So just because we think nothing is happening doesn't mean that nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. It could just be that it's hidden from us as we give consent to God in the obscurity of what's underneath our consciousness, God is still at work. Yeah, and here we are kind of beginning to delve the depths of the fact that contemplative prayer often becomes the place of the deepest kind of identity work or the deepest way that God draws our true self to the surface. And you are sharing with me, Reward, in your own story, some interesting ways that's worked itself out. No, no, absolutely. And um, I almost uh, think that the deeper the trauma, right, the more silent and insidious the work of formation is. And uh, just to kind of bring you guys a little bit into my story, when you come, when you hail from, right, a different context and you step into rooms, really established rooms, right, like tables around luminary thinkers, you are prone to the worst cases, right, of, uh, you know, just like uh, identity crisis or the Mm. imposter syndrome. And you're like, does my contribution in any context, right, have any value? And whatever you may enter in. And for me, um, that was coming from Zimbabwe. That was, man, it was, it was eating my lunch in a lot of ways. And I still remember I couldn't just sit down and jump into, right, this space of contemplative prayer where God deeply forms or reforms, right, my mind models around my identity simply for two things, uh, two fundamental whammies, if I can. The first is the fact that I hail from a very gregarious culture, right? It's like we are loud. We, it's almost like we're afraid of introspection and we've never really been taught how to. And I feel like my, my, my brothers in the African-American, Black American context kind of share this. And then the second thing is my model of my father, right? I don't know if, if, if I've told you guys this, but I come from a family, same mom, same dad, uh, uh, 13 kids. No, I you have totally, not told me that. No, I haven't told you oh, guys no that. No wonder yet. you're so wonderful. <laughs> no, thank you. You know, <laughs> altruism increases with the number of children. Oh my goodness. And, and your boy is like number 11 of 13. So they've got all the grandkids, they've got all the accomplishments. That's how you get a name like Reward, right? They were on grandkids <laughs> before you showed exactly. up. Exactly. They're just done trying. And also too, within that model, the particular model, so child number one, so they pour everything about their parenting into child number one and two, and then they're done. Child number one, everything's a Kodak moment, right? Number 11, you're the one taking the family pictures, you know. Who's <laughs> not in it. No, you are not in it at all, you know. They're just like. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. Somebody the child number 11 is weeping. <laughs> exactly. I, I took the like... photo too. <laughs> I took. But, but so in that, um, my dynamic with my father was very distant. Yeah. Right? And fathers are so crucial to formation. So within myself, and I feel like even within the African-American context, so there is this deep trauma of fatherlessness, mm-hmm. which then defines uh, the, the, our, our actions. It defines this consumer culture that you find within a lot of uh, African-American context. And so, and, and there's no way to fix it because, right, there's nobody, if your father was not there to impart identity on you and to do all those things, so you can't. So for me... 
It was in introspective, right, prayer. It was in coming to God. And I still remember this concept of the perichoresis, right? That St. Gregory of Nazianzus talks about that. God is eternally in this dance. It's a dynamic. We're brought into this father and this son and into their dynamic of love. And for the first time, that's where I saw the model of fatherhood and sonship redeemed. And this isn't happening where the waterfalls are, right? This is happening in a place of deep upon deep. And so then in that place was when I began to read the word with the right lens. And I began to see that, no, God is a father, that there's a dynamic. And even if my uh, current dynamic is the farthest thing from this, right, I can still be inducted into what that essentially looks like. And this came to a head recently, actually, when... So uh, the Baylor School of Leadership has this thing to where it takes uh, some of the most influential um, black educators and uh, school principals and everything, and it pays for this. It's an incredible retreat to where they can come and uh, essentially process all the racism and all the systemic junk that happens in their schools because the academia is not really a space to process that. Hmm. And so within that context, they have someone that they essentially call like a... Uh, a doula to kind of help them through the process spiritually so it doesn't just come you devolve into this cesspool of process. And I still remember as we were having those conversations, I'm looking and I'm going, oh, that's where the void is. It's in the formation, it's in the fatherlessness. So the first thing I say is, hey, you guys know that in the book of Revelation 7, verse 9, right? It says people from every tribe and tongue and everything. That means your ethnicity is redeemable. There's aspects of that that are redeemable. And they were like, oh, wow, I actually never thought of that. And then I asked them this question, and this is where I want to land this. I was like, okay, so I want you to picture this. I want you to picture you're in that and everything, and everybody's talking uh, in this redeemed, like, what is your language? And no one could answer it. I was like, are you speaking in that? If everyone from every tribe and tongue, are you speaking the language of the oppressor? Or do you have, do you get reset to the language of, you're gone. And, and it was such a mind-blowing aspect mm. to it because they're like, wait a second. I don't even really think I know my language. Every tribe mm. and a tongue. tongue. And mm. so I was like, what tongue are you speaking? I know what I'm speaking. I'm speaking Zulu, right? What are you speaking? And nobody had a frame of reference. And someone brought up this story, and this is where I want to land this, that uh, Bishop Jakes was essentially telling to a room of, uh, of black leaders. And he was talking about how someone came up to him and said, hey, um, so do you know your ethnicity? And he was like, yeah, I did this uh, kind of genetic test and I think I'm Igbo. And the guy's like, oh, you're Igbo. And so he starts talking to, this is a guy who's been on Time Magazine. This is the bishop. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and he says, oh, this is what your language sounds like. And he starts speaking in Igbo. And T.D. Jakes breaks down and starts crying because for the first mm -hmm. time, he's seeing the power of that. So I think to me... Wow to a gregarious culture, right? And to people that are prone to fatherlessness, identity, the deep work of trauma removal or reversal, it has to be formed in that particular perichoresis context where in right, introspective and contemplative prayer, we let God father us. We let yeah. him redeem the models. We let him essentially teach us the family dynamics of what that looks like. And if it was not for introspective prayer, Africans and African-Americans, we're notorious for screaming into the mic when we're praying. But if it was not for that, my spiritual formation would, have, would not have taken off. So, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, you, you know, when it comes to the theme of contemplative prayer, John Mark, you offered that beautiful line from, uh, beautiful and blunt line from now and uh, in yeah. our last episode about how basically like if you do not have time for silence and solitude, you cannot live a spiritual life. Yeah. Um, is is the, the heart behind it. And that makes a lot of sense in some contexts. And yeah, for others, that would be infuriating. <laughs> like, well, where am I supposed <laughs> to carve out time for that? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to jump in and say that, you know, I, I do think, I mean, I, I am firm believer that silence and solitude is so important in our spiritual formation. But I think another misconception is that I have to spend hours every day in silence. And I, I can tell you, you know, as a mom of four young kids, six and under, two of whom are eight-month-old twins, I do not have much time to myself. And even my R- rhythms really? of prayer, what, and, and my, even my rhythms of prayer aren't, aren't exactly what I would choose for myself. Uh, and I'm sure that is true of any mom who's listening. And one book that was really helpful and and comforting to me is a little book called Domestic Monastery, oh also Ronald gosh. Rollheiser, which every, I know we've named a lot. Every single yeah. parent, at least with young kids, has, has to read this to book. Read it. Has and to read it. He's a wise man. He made it like a 20-minute read. Exactly. It's so short. <laughs> it's the best kind of book for parents. But in that book, he talks about... Carlo Corretto, who lived for more than a dozen years as a hermit in the Sahara Desert, and he was alone praying for long hours by himself. And he he returns to Italy one day to visit his mother, and he comes to this realization that his mom, who for more than 30 years of her life had been busy raising a family, scarcely having a minute to herself, that she was more of a contemplative than he was um, and that something about her life of of navigating these interruptions and the noise and the incessant demands of young children, that she was in her own kind of monastery experience. And Rollheiser, you know, makes the statement that parenting, when done with love and compassion, will do for us what prayer will do for us. And I yeah. think so much of that is because of the self-denial, the surrender that is involved. Moms are constantly having to pivot to the needs of their children. There's a constant reality of self-denial. And he talks about those interruptions being like the monastic bells, you know, that monks have to drop whatever they're doing to respond to these bells. And we do the same thing with, with our kids. And I think for me, that also segues into another misconception that that contemplation is separate from ordinary life. It's not. It happens right in the middle of our ordinary life. And I've come to realize that my life with my kids is not getting in the way of my spiritual formation, but it is fundamental to my spiritual formation. Well said. Hi, I'm Leanna. I'm in my early 40s, and I'm a stay-at-home mom of boys that are three and six years old and my daily prayer rhythm is always changing and evolving but I try to always have a a connection moment with God in the morning before I do anything else um, too intense in the day as far as looking at my phone so sometimes I'll read the daily scripture reading or I will read a prayer um, or I'll pray through the Lord's Prayer um, through the different movements 
of praise, intercession, uh, petition, and spiritual warfare. That's always a big blessing when I do take the time to do that. And then in the evening, I often pray from Celtic Daily Prayer with my husband. We'll read the evening compline together. And that's been a real big blessing to read a prayer that's thought out and based on scripture because so many times it comes back to me. I've read them often so they're in my memory um, when I don't have words to pray. And what I try to do in the evening after everything is finished and it's quiet is sit in the silence for five to ten minutes. I just um, get in a comfortable position and take about five deep breaths and then just say here I am and try to bring my thoughts back to resting in God's presence and so often he shows up usually with an image of comfort or just seeing how he was with me in the day so I find that it it feeds my soul absolutely having that time where I'm actually with God yeah, you know, that noun quote, uh, without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life or whatever it is exactly. In context, he's actually, he's writing about solitude and he tells the story. Do you know this about him going to Mother Teresa? Mm-hmm. So he goes to Mother Teresa for like spiritual direction, travels all the way to India and asks her, you know, how, to, how I'm stuck, blah, blah, blah. Not, not blah, blah, blah. It was Henry <laughs> Now, and I'm sure it was quite <laughs> profound. But insert story in your imagination. And her advice to him was, spend an hour each day in adoration of your Lord and never do anything you know is wrong, and Mm. you'll be fine. And it was so simple. I mean, one sentence, spend an hour a day in adoration of the Lord and don't do what you know is wrong. But we can hear that and imagine like a, a monk, you know, hour each day, perfect stillness, perfect silence, no distraction, you're in your cell or whatever, which is not an option for most people, definitely not if they have four kids and two twins and so on. But th- there's a type, again, we're, we're moving beyond, we're t- to wordless prayer, not beyond, we're moving, we're talking about a, an aspect of prayer, a dimension of prayer, where you're trying to place your, your body, your whole self before God. You know, we'll air the Strawn interview in a few weeks, but, you know, Strawn has really little kids too and has uh, chronic illness and so I was asking him about, like, what's, what's your morning prayer? He's such a compelling life with God. What's your morning, like, prayer thing? And I was expecting, like, the bells and the incense and the candles. And the, he's like, oh, man, my boys are literally giving each other bloody noses. He has little kids like you do, you know, little boys, Tyler. And he's talking about, yeah, sometimes I'm just sitting there in bed and my boys are crawling all over me and wrestling and I'm just trying to welcome God into my body. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So whether you're, if you have little kids or whatever, there are ways into this where you're just, you're just welcoming God. Um, Strong used the word of homed. Listen to what he said about this. The holding is this way of living like that with God. It's like my body is homed by God now, and what I do with that is prayer. How I live and and engage in the world is prayer, and so. It moves beyond the mind into what I can consciously hold on to all the time and into this sort of God sees me and I see him and I'm learning to live my life kind of held in that way. Um, And even that language falls painfully short of 
trying to describe what I feel or what I imagine the saints mean by unceasing prayer and what I've experienced in my own life. Um, but maybe in its simplicity, it's just learning to receive God's loving and compassionate gaze toward us and then to just lovingly and compassionately gaze back at God all day, every day, every minute until we're in full glory. John Mark, you mentioned Henry Nowen going to Calcutta and I spent some time out there with the missionaries of charity. Mother Teresa um, had already died, but we would gather in Mother House before we'd go out to the slums uh, on the weekend sessions. And we would we would go down through these stairs and there was an archway and above the arch, it said some of her words, which basically were, today there are no great things, only small things with great love. And I think for me, contemplation draws us back to our first love. It's it's all about intimacy with God and sitting under the loving gaze of God. I think of the scripture in Sephaniah that talks about God taking great delight in us and rejoicing over us with singing. I think that is what is happening when we are sitting in contemplation. It's about finding ourselves at home in the love of God and experiencing the immensity of God's love. And then our love is in response. Richard Foster talks about how our love is not an originating love, but a responding love. Uh, and it's just this beautiful sense of communion where I sit under the loving gaze of God and then my response of love comes out mm. in this loving communion. Wow. And I think just even you saying that, Gemma, is so, it's going to sound so foreign to a lot of people, right? To millennials and Gen Z, because even just the idea of sitting is it is incredibly right it, it brings incredible anxiety in, in in the heart and lives of a lot of people because we have this modern day addiction to noise and experience right stimulation in, yeah, stimulation over stimulation in order for it to be meaningful it's got to be loud it's got to be I, I i think herbert simon the the economist is the one that coined this term attention economy right yeah that we exist in an attention economy uh, so everyone is fighting, TikTok and, and everything else, they have invested deeply into the distractions of a generation. They're fighting for that, you know, those few seconds of, of beachhead space in our cognitive process to plant an idea. And that idea propagated rightly essentially reaches critical mass and becomes the operating system of an, of an entire generation. Wow. And that's why when we think about it, right, I love in the book of Psalms, when, when the psalmist says, hey, deep calls to deep above the noise of your waterfall. So we are so addicted to the waterfall, right? The, uh, and, and, and I believe a lot of the deepest works of formation happened in these places of stillness and silence. And I think the first step to discipleship in their lives, that's why I love what you guys are doing with Bridgetown and bringing people back to the monastic pace of the disciplines when it comes to to God and everything that's happening. I, there's this book by um, Andy Crouch, uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, which I really love. And in there, he's got this concept that the reason that God chose uh, the Middle East, right, to essentially birth our faith is the simple fact that there's literally nothing there. So as you're walking the desert, you're forced to look inwards. And mm -hmm. I just really want to say, man, to a generation that is that is forced to this, there is not a lot of meaningful things that will happen around spectacle. spectacle. And so recently, Brian right, sat down with uh, Rich Viotis, and uh, 
there's an incredible, incredible quote that I want to share with you guys that he, he mentioned. I usually, uh, if I'm sitting down, I have a chair often in my, my bedroom or a place in our home, or if I'm at the church office, and uh, sometimes I use a, like a centering prayer app or my timer on my phone, and I just set it for five, 10. My sweet spot is usually about 15 minutes. And in that space, I have one goal, present to the presence of God. And here's what I know happens. What happens is I get uh, insights I've, or, or the scratch, I got to email that person or imaginary conversations. If this person says that to me, I'm going to say this to that person. And I start going down a road. And then, and then very simply, I just come back. My, the, the, the word, that the phrase that I often use is Jesus, here I am. And when I find myself getting distracted every time, Jesus, here I am. Oh, I have to send out email. Oh, Jesus, here I am. You know, if that person says this to me, oh, Jesus, here I am. And, and then out of that place, five, 10, 15 minutes, I usually then have a journal and a good definition of prayer is just lifting mind and heart to God. It's kind of a classic ancient definition of prayer. And it's at that point where I lift mind and heart to God. Uh, and, and then, you know, what's, what are my needs? But for me, order is important. I, I, I resist transactionalism by cultivating communion. And I think this is the order of the Lord's prayer as well. It, our father in heaven, you know, just there's intimacy first and then give us as they are daily bread. It doesn't begin with give us as they are daily bread, our, our father in heaven. You know, it's just, so order is important here. And, uh, and then I set my time. And this is what I know, what I, I, I want to normalize that this stuff does not feel good in the moment. Henry Nouwen said that it's often in retrospect that I recognize that something has happened, that I rarely see it in the moment. Uh, it's Kierkegaard's thing on, you know, life is lived forward, but understood backwards. It's, it's in retrospect, I look back, oh, I am changing. Uh, but if anyone's like me, I tend to obsess about change which is why one of the teachings of Jesus that has become most helpful for my own spiritual formation is when he says about generosity, uh, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. And there is this holy unawareness that I need to ask Jesus to help me on a regular basis with because I'm too often aware of my own righteousness and my own development and my own progress. And I want to get to a place more and more where I'm not even aware of it. What about for you guys around the table and, you know, in your, again, there's no right way to do this. How, how do you guys practice this kind of prayer? Yeah, something that's been really helpful for me is a practice called breath prayer. And it's very simply where with our inhale of breath and our exhale, we are using simple words of prayer. And it might be some words from scripture or an ancient prayer. I have a few that I use personally. Um, and it's very simply that with my inhale, I will say to Jesus, in you. And then with my exhale, I will either say, I live, I rest, mm -hmm. or I delight, depending on mm, beautiful. how I'm doing, whether I want to express gratitude or whether mm. I am in need of God's presence to just bring restoration to my body. And there are times, intentional times in my morning where... Honestly, a lot of my prayer these days is is silent, and it usually involves uh, one of these breath prayers. And I will spend intentional time doing that. But what I love about breath prayer is that I then get to carry it with me throughout my day. 
So when my child is having a meltdown or <laughs> I'm standing in line at the post office, I can turn my attention to that breath yeah. prayer. It's like my my body, heart and mind want to pray that prayer. Wow. It's just like in you. And you don't need an hour. I rest. I don't need an hour. You it's like if I have a minute or a breath even. Yeah, exactly. And for me, I think what's been really beautiful about that practice is it's this sense of um, not only me expressing my love to God, but also my ex- me experiencing his love for me. So I will spend some time, let's say, I'm saying, in you, Jesus, I delight. And then over time, it's like I then hear God saying to me, yes, Gemma, in you, I delight. Wow. In you, I live. Mm. And and for me, like when Paul talks about praying without ceasing, you know, he's not like sitting on, he's not on his knees all day, every day. <laughs> you know, he's, prayer is is part of the fabric of whatever he's doing. And I think for me, so much of the journey of my life with God is about narrowing the gap between when I am aware of God's presence and when I am not. And and breath prayer is a really helpful way to narrow that gap. Mm. Yeah, I, I use a breath prayer as well. And uh, my practice is for the, the first movement of my day with God to be to sit with my feet fixed on the ground, my hands open on my lap, to pray my own breath prayer repeatedly, and to to close my eyes as best I can, fixing my gaze on the loving gaze of Jesus. And I've found that, first of all, that was my practice for a long time before it became sacred to me and a desire. It was it was sort of a, God, I, I trust you enough to use this for something. And enough people who have gone before me deeper in the journey than I have have found you here. So would you find me here waiting yeah. on you? And now it's sacred to me. And, and probably, honestly, I think maybe my favorite few minutes of every day. But mm-hmm. what I've noticed is that it's also a way for me to take my soul's spiritual temperature. Because when I'm not doing great spiritually, it takes a long time for my mind to stop racing and declutter and come to a place of true stillness and catch up with my body, which is still... And when I'm doing well and my soul is attentive to God, it happens much more quickly. But it's become kind of a way to gauge, how am I doing right now? How is my soul? Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's this thing within the Ndebele context. It's called Ugububula. And uh, the best uh, translation I can get is when it talks about groaning, like when it talks about... So within a specific cultural context, there are some things like deep pain or deep trauma which are so like when which are so deep within that you don't have any language for it. Yeah. And so there's an actual method of prayer around that to where you just sit still before the Lord and you try to muster groans mm. internally. Like groan you, your prayer. You to literally him. groan before him, knowing that he has Yeah, it's like that Romans line with groanings that were Exactly that cannot that express. Cannot express. That's precisely right. Romans eight is where this is actually kind of taken care of where it says like all creation is groaning, right? Exactly. And so for me, I've found that that in a lot of ways when everything is happening is akin to kind of like my breath prayer when it's talking about that, just groaning internally with burdens that you can't uh, articulate. And and at the deep point of that groan reward is is a groan, yes, for the pain to go away, the Mm -hmm. suffering to go away, but it's ultimately for God, right? For union with Mm -hmm. God, you know? Yes. But I, I think where this 
goes from really beautiful and compelling to really difficult is that it just directly confronts like the hurry and the busyness and the stimulation and the noise and the noise pollution that is both all around us in our culture and our urbanized environment, but is inside us that we become complicit in, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's just, the problem with this type of prayer is there's not a lot of ways to do it quick. You know, there's the breath prayer, but even that is best experienced like intentionally, whether it's in the morning or at night or whenever is best for you for a period of time and then throughout the day, you know? It's kind of like, like this is a weird analogy, but I recently... Uh, started reading about the science. You know, there's all this new science right now about breathing. Mm-hmm. And so I read that book by James Nestor, Breath, which is a phenomenal read. Mm-hmm. And it basically argues that most Western people don't know how to breathe and our breathing <laughs> is all messed up. Wow. And uh, and I took like a self-inventory and realized like, holy cow, my breath is all messed up. And it has like all this massive effect on your your holistic well-being. So I've been doing these breathing exercises where, you know, I'll start first thing in the morning, and I'll normally do a breath prayer with it. Mine is, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So when in doubt, just borrow from Scripture or Psalm 23. <laughs> uh, it's a, just a, a good rule of thumb in general. But so I'll breathe, you know, I did it this morning. I'll breathe a number of times and for a while, for several minutes or sometimes 20 minutes. And then during the day, I'll try to pause and just do two or three breaths to come back. What I'm trying to do is retrain my nervous system because mm. breathing is subconscious. It's yeah. not conscious. I'm trying to retrain my nervous system to breathe properly all day long. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, I feel like that's what contemplative prayer is. It's trying to retrain your spirit to breathe in and breathe out and be with God all day long. But there's just, there's not like a quick fix for it. It's mm-hmm. just, it is, you can do it as a parent. You can do it with the busy life. You don't have to be a monk or a nun. And it will require you to slow down. Uh, Rich said some more great things on this topic. One of the reasons why I go to monasteries annually is because I know that my soul needs lots of time to get to a place where it can be free enough to be kissed by God. And we're just not going to do that in two to three minute spurts here. So I think part of the beholding is about slowing down on our lives and making space so that it, our souls can be kissed by God. And which is my, for my New York City congregation, I mean, I have to preach this every single week. Our lives are so full. We're going 150 miles an hour and God wants to kiss your soul. Um, slow down, uh, make space. And I think that's how, one of the ways that we begin to behold Jesus and you know, God in scripture and self-examination and creation and stillness. Um, those are some things that come to mind. Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Mackenzie from Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm a part of this community. To join myself and others in the circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org slash give. So it seems fitting to close this second season of the Rule of Life podcast where we've tried to journey through different expressions of prayer. John Mark, maybe if you would pray 
for those who have come the full distance with us. Uh, the listener, whether they're at home doing the dishes or on their commute or uh, on a morning run or who knows what. But if, if maybe you would close by praying all this, these thoughts into their being as they continue their own journey into union with Christ. Yeah, we're so thankful that you would give us your ear these last few episodes. But um, I don't know what you're doing right now or where you are, but if possible, why don't you just take a moment to stop? Maybe put down the, the sponge and the soap or the laundry or pause on the side of the road if you're on a run. And again, this is all invitational. And I would invite you to just really become present to your body to maybe just start by just kind of feeling your feet on the ground, wherever they are, kind of starting to kind of feel your body. And again, you're just trying to become present to the moment because the moment is where time touches eternity, where our body touches God. I you just to take a few just really deep, slow, pure breaths in and out. Maybe just make Gemma's prayer your own. In you, I live. In you, I rest. In you, I delight. As you breathe with God in a place beyond thoughts and feelings and words, all good. But as you just breathe in this place with God, I love the language used by Rich. Just let God kiss your soul. Let God look at you and love you. Open the door of your heart and let the Trinity come in and sit down at your table. God, we welcome you as you welcome us. We look at you looking at us in love. We thank you, Father sending your son we thank you jesus for coming thank you father and son for giving us the holy spirit placing your presence and your peace deep within the temple of our body let us live and move and have our being in you this day and all the days of our life amen